Welcome back. It is another Cardinals off day, which means it's time for another Cardinals off day podcast. The Cardinals are 31 and 29. That puts them on pace to win 84 games. I'm Ben Godar, and uh, with me, as always, is Ben Humphrey. Ben, how you doing? Uh, well, I'd be doing a heck of a lot better if the Cardinals could have won, well, more than one, but at least one game against the Cincinnati Reds at home in the middle of June. Uh, a pretty rough uh, series with an absolute gut punch to end it. Um, but otherwise, uh, doing pretty well. Summer's beginning. Uh, we're really getting into the, the grind of the baseball season. And so I've been a little bit surprised to see folks, uh, you know, ready to throw in the towel with so much season left to play. Yeah, agreed. And I, I think we're going to get to a specific question on that here in just a minute. But uh, before we do, uh, Ben, uh, it's and it's been a, another kind of two-week stretch here. So we've had a little bit of a longer stretch in between. In fact, Last when we last recorded, uh, the Cardinals were, uh, I believe, still on pace to win 90 games. So uh, I actually did get a, a text from uh, 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 Mike Gersh earlier uh, this uh, today, actually asking us to please record a podcast because he thought the lack of a Cardinals off day <laughs> podcast could have been leading to this bad stretch. So uh, Ben and I are here to do what we can. But in that time, Ben, uh, what do you feel like you've learned? Um. I think that we have learned that uh, not much new, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, It's just reinforcing what we already knew. And you've talked about the injuries. um, But uh, in my mind, I I think that what we have seen is, and we've been talking about this really since uh, the first podcast that we recorded, that the Cardinals have pitching depth but it wasn't the type of pitching depth that they wanted to dip into in the first half of the 2021 season. And not only have they had to dip into it during the first half of the season, they had to dip into it uh, in the opening week of the season and continuously dip into it. And they they didn't just have to dip into it. They had to dump it out and then get out a rubber spatula and scrape out anything that was left. Yes. And so what you have is uh, you have the overall concern about the workload uh, with all pitchers uh, combined with proven veterans who you anticipate being able to take on more of a workload, uh, not being able to do so, uh, namely Miles Michaelis. Um, And then you have them using someone who I think they saw as more of a stopgap in John Gant and uh, thank goodness uh, for a long time, he was able to pitch way over his head and way better than his peripherals. Uh, and I shouldn't even really say that he pitched. The results were better uh, in large part due to his defense. And I know he has like this Houdini narrative that some of the establishment media who have to curry favor with players for access and interviews and that type of thing have been promoting Um, but you know, I don't remember Houdini ever getting out of a dunk tank because his assistant took an ax to the dunk tank and drained all the water out. And then the crowd applauding and talking about what a brilliant magician he was. And, you know, quite often we see these really amazing plays from the defense, uh, helping to, uh, keep runs off the board, uh, after John Gant has walked them onto the bases. And so what we've seen is, you know, he was able to defy gravity for a little bit. Uh, today, uh, you know, he he was kind of like Wiley Coyote, right? Like he walked off the cliff, uh, but he wasn't able to sustain the illusion anymore. And he plummeted, not to his death, <laughs> but to a, you know, a seven run start. I think he raised his ERA over a run. And it's really unfortunate because they needed him to keep up uh, his hocus pocus uh, for another few weeks. And hopefully maybe he still will be able to, but I just watch him pitch. He's not a very good pitcher. Uh, Johan Oviedo has the potential to be a good pitcher, but he's just not ready. Uh, I don't think Liberator is ready either. Uh, Thompson, uh, Zach Thompson down in AAA, I don't think he's ready either. And so, you know, they're in a position now with the injuries where uh, they're going to be continuing to rely on pitchers who are not ready to be major league starters. 
And uh, it's very concerning because we're going to get into a, a pretty ugly slog here um, where they cannot afford to lose a game where Adam Wainwright gives up four runs like they did the other night. They just can't. If Adam Wainwright is starting at Bush Stadium and he gives up less than five runs, you have to win that game because you've got John Gant, you've got Oviedo, and you know I, I just don't see how they can uh, continue to keep their head above water while they're doing this where uh, the pitching staff is so decimated. And they're in this weird position where I don't think other teams are looking to trade, but they aren't ready to dip into their AAA depth and it's just going to be a really weird dynamic because they've got some guys who are on the cusp of being ready to pitch in the majors, but they aren't quite there yet. And other teams aren't really ready to trade away proven major league starters because they aren't ready to give up on their seasons. And so we're going to just have to, I guess, grin and bear whatever June brings us. Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch on some of those pitching things a little bit later uh, today as well. Uh, so as far as what I learned and, and, you know, you said you felt like you hadn't learned anything new and I would say this is not something that I learned in the past, uh, couple weeks, but it was something that was really cemented for me. And that was that when Mike Schilt is under pressure, he has a tendency to overmanage. And I think, I feel like we've seen this a while from him, but I think we've just really seen it kind of turned up to 11 this season. Um, and I want to mention a, a careless bird whisperer on Twitter twit, uh, tweeted us about this as well and kind of asked if this was something we were going to touch on. And I, it was something I was already planning on on hitting on. And so the two things this season that have just really stood out to me, uh, number one, and this stands out to everybody, is all the intentional walks. And uh, uh, Ben Clemens, uh, our for, former uh, Viva Alberto's colleague uh, who's at Fangraphs now, wrote a pretty good piece on this a week or so ago. Uh, you know, the Cardinals lead the league in intentional walks to load the bases. And if you've watched any Cardinals games this year, I'm sure you've seen this happen. It's, it's kind of showing itself as a favorite tactic of Schilt in some of these situations. Um, I actually, I couldn't, I had trouble parsing to figure out exactly how many of those runs have come in. It was one of those things I just didn't quite, uh, you know, get the search done. But my gut instinct tells me it's about 200,000 that have come in um, from those intentional walks. That's what it feels like. Does that feel accurate to you, Ben? That sounds about right. Okay. Okay. Good. I just want to make sure I wasn't too off base there. Um, so, um, so anyway, you know, Ben looked at this, um, they lead the league in intentional walks. Um, it's not good. Now his result, the results are a little inclusive overall. How bad is this? Cause it's, you know, it's like a lot of these tactical things. It's like, it goes really terribly sometimes, sometimes it works, etc. But, uh, you know, a couple problems with it just in general, number one, there are knock on effects every time you do this that are a little hard to, uh, quantify and you know specifically so many of these intentional walks are coming to get to the pitcher which you know the, the reasoning is you've got runners on base the pitcher might end the inning so you, those runners don't score but you're just guaranteeing more and more at bats for the top of the lineup guys you're starting innings with top of the lineup guys so that's never great um, and then the other thing is just he's doing it so often in the really early innings of the game and whether it's a, a bunt or a, an intentional walk drives me crazy when you see managers doing this in like, you know, the second, third, fourth inning of games, because those are all playing for one run strategies. And you don't know what kind of game it's going to be at that point. You know, it could you could be in a two to one game at that point or you could be in a 15 to 12 game at that point. So choosing to, uh, you know, play for one run in those early situations, I think never makes sense. And then the other thing with the intentional walks is, you know, just the bunting. And again, you see this pop up and it was really notable this Thursday. And I think we all remember the game. The Cardinals are down four, two in the ninth. Um, Matt Carpenter singles and then Edmundo Sosa bunted, but it was a, he it was a bunt for a hit. He kind of, you know, he, he thought he could get one down. He laid one down, got a hit out of it. Definitely something he did on his own. So you got first and second, nobody out, uh, you know, the, uh, teams on the ropes a little bit there. And, uh, then he calls for Rondon to bunt and put him into a double play, which is again, to me, you're, you're the, the manager cannot win the game. The manager cannot go out there and strike anybody out. He can't hit the ball. He can't score a run. He can never win the game, but when you see managers that are kind of being stressed, sometimes they insert themselves and they want to do the thing that they can do. You know, um, it's like that middle manager in a you know real bureaucracy, you know, insisting that their form be filled out. It's like this is the one thing I can do, and I just think that's the kind of thing that you saw in that case. 
that's the kind of thing I feel like we're seeing a lot of from Mike Schill. And it absolutely uh, frustrates me. That said, <laughs> I got to qualify all this by saying, I think Mike Schilt's a pretty good manager of, of people. And I still, I, I, by all accounts, he does that really well with his team. And as much as it drives us crazy when we see managers make these mistakes, because these are the things we can tangibly see and say, were I sitting there, I would not do that. It's overall such a small part of what the manager does. So I just want to be clear, I'm not getting on like a Mike Schilt should be fired anything here, but this is just something I'm starting to see consistently from him that's, that's really become a, a frustration for me. Uh, and when we had Alex on uh, a, a couple episodes ago, we did a box score of your where they were walking guys to load the bases, uh, you know, yep. there from the turn of the 80s into the 90s. And it is a tactic that I feel like was more prevalent, um, you know, a 10, 20, 30 years ago uh, than it is today, because I, I think manager organizations and it has filtered down to managers uh, recognize that intentional walks are usually more trouble than they're worth. Um, they can come back to yeah. bite you and, and Schilt, you know, he's got that book with all the notes from Kissel and all that. Uh, I think he has a tendency to make managerial decisions like it's 1989 and not like it's 2021 sometimes. And it is a little like what's going on here. Right. Um, with the sack bunt with Rondone, right. I think, you know, you heard him walk through his thinking and he didn't say it, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> I think he was also in his mind thinking there is a higher likelihood of a ground and double play that takes us out of this game if I let him hit with the top of the order coming up than if I call for this bunt. Um, and I think that was part of the thinking there as well. That, you know, worst case scenario, they get one of the lead runners in his mind and uh, then you still get to have the top of the order bat, you know, with the time yeah. on, on the bases. And, you know, he's not going to well, throw his his uh, batter under the bus like that. But I I think right. and, and Rondon's not good. So, <laughs> right. you know, like, well, there's a one in five chance that he gets a safe hit, probably maybe a little bit more uh, there. Yeah. And it's much lower that there's a ground into double play, which is, I think, part of the reason why it's so weird is why not yeah. just let him hit and see what happens. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the right thing to do there would have been just to pinch hit Goldschmidt for Rondon. You know, if you're not, if, if you're, <laughs> Goldschmidt was your big car, you know, your big play you had on the bench and, and they brought him up next. You know, even if Rondon had gotten that bunt down, moved the runners to second and third, uh, you're going to have one out and then they're going to intentionally walk Goldschmidt. And so you've given up an out to bring Tommy Edmund up and, You've and you've taken you've not given uh, a chance to hit to your, uh, you know, high quality everyday first baseman who happens to be lurking on your bench that day. So um, anyway, we could parse that a lot of ways, but it just it, it was, it, you know, to be clear, the second I saw Rondon scoring around for bunt, I was, you know, shouting, oh, no, at my television. So <laughs> this wasn't entirely a, obviously the result was about as bad as it could have been. But I think, you know, even if you got the intended result there, it's 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 a bad choice and it just shows that that kind of meddlesome managing as opposed to saying like, you know what, like, let's, let's go out there. You, you know, you, the players need to win this game. Um, they're reeling this, this, you know, pitchers giving up hits. Let's just keep, you know, let's keep swinging and, you know, make them turn, I, turn the inning around. And, and that to me was the biggest red flag is their, their reliever did not look good yeah. and you're going to throw yeah. him a lifeline in the form of a free out. And yeah, uh, well, and that's kind of like, I distinctly, I distinctly remember Tony La Russa saying he, he really strongly preferred not to intentionally walk batters because, and I think he was asked this a lot in the sort of Barry Bonds era when it was fairly de rigueur to walk Bonds at any kind of a situation where he could do damage at all. Uh, you know, and La Russa would say, I don't like to send the message to my pitchers that they can't get a guy out. 
And I mean, you know, that's a little bit of a Cowboy LaRusa type comment, but I feel I felt then and I feel now there's some validity to that. And when I see the way that Schilt has his guys out there issuing these intentional walks and then immediately following them up with an unintentional walk because they're nervous and they can't hit the zone, I feel like I wish that was not our approach. So um, I, I but I feel that- like we should. I, and I no, also say it's all about like showing your guys that you trust them. And that's the core of that La Russa uh, quote. Yeah. And right. so many times, especially in the Twitter era, and I like Twitter, so I don't, I don't mean to uh, put down Twitter necessarily. I just mean you have a lot of preemptive first guessing and then a lot of I told you so and second guessing and all that. But managers have to play, and this is exactly the point that I think you're driving at in Larusa is, is you're not just playing for today. You're playing for many yeah. games where this pitcher is going to yeah. be on the mound in the future. And yeah. you need to show them that you have faith in them. And he did this with Gallegos leaving him in earlier in the year when people were freaking out, and we kind of touched on that. And that's what Larusa is driving at. Um, but I also kind of feel like, to a degree, it feels like this year Schild is maybe not recognizing what he has, in particular in his bullpen. Because <laughs> if you're playing for the tie at home, you're going to have to go into that bullpen for who knows how long. And do you really think you're going to be able to win that game? You know, right. if you're right. in- issuing this intentional base on balls, you're saying that you think this ba- this pitcher is going to be able to throw enough strikes to get the next batter out. And with this yeah. rotation... Do the Cardinals really have that many pitchers that you feel that confident in uh, that they can do that? Yeah. And it's yeah. it's this weird line to walk, especially for Schilt right now, where he has to play for today and tomorrow. And you wonder if, if the talent that he has right now and will have tomorrow is going to reward him uh, for those types of decisions. And it, it is, yeah. I well, do not envy him. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, in, in this no, season. it's not easy. And you, you, so you brought up Twitter feedback, and actually that leads into um, another question we had from uh, Daniel Shapta, who's a C70 on Twitter and on uh, his blog and on he, uh, his Substack, and of course the Meet Me at Musical podcast. So if you don't follow Daniel, you definitely should. And and he said, you know, there's starting to be a lot of skies falling, pack it in talk on Twitter. It feels too early for that, even with the injuries. But how much run, runway do they have to make changes before it's a reasonable discussion? And I, I mean, I, I have noticed the same thing Daniel has. There's definitely, especially when you get into that kind of Twitter conversation, there's a lot of that sky is falling. Um, and I know we're going to get into injuries and rotation in the bullpen here in a minute, but just overall, how, how, to what degree, Ben, would you say the sky is falling? Uh, bits and pieces of it are falling. Uh, and it's uh, maybe a little bit bigger pieces than you'd like. I wouldn't walk around outside in it. Um. <laughs> Uh, it's, and, and we touched on it earlier. I, I think the number one, I guess, silver lining is, you know, Yadier Molina's day to day. Harrison Bader is probably uh, going to be back by the end of the month. Maybe, uh, he's been doing some light throwing. Um, Kim sounds like he should be back sooner than later. DeYoung sounds like he should be back sooner than later. Um, Flaherty's going to be out for two months, which is is uh, at least probably two months, which is not good, and and Michaelis as well. And so you hope that they get the players back who you can be optimistic about them coming back and that they're able to perform. Um, but when you look at the health in particular of the starting rotation, if there was one starting pitcher who they could not afford to lose for a significant amount of time this year, it was Jack Flaherty um, because he is the best pitcher uh, in the rotation and on the staff overall. And they're counting on him to go six, seven, eight, nine innings every game and give them a chance to win. And they do not have a pitcher who can do that now. They don't. And people may say, well, they have Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright right now is a league average pitcher. And if he's pitching at home, they can probably expect him to do that. But if he's pitching on the road, they probably can't. Uh, Carlos Martinez, his strikeout rate is virtually non-existent. 
Uh, the cutter that he's using for some reason is getting hit pretty hard and not terribly impressive. Uh, he is the, the tsunami now is, is just riding balls in play and seeing what happens. Uh, cause he's not missing bats. Uh, then I already talked about John Gant, Oviedo. Uh, it's, um, it's not, uh, looking good for this team uh, in the near and probably medium term because they are going to have to go outside of the organization to get an upgrade. And I hate to say it, but that upgrade will almost certainly not be as good as Jack Flaherty. I know that Scherzer is the preferred target, um, and that would be amazing. But if you look at the pitchers that have change teams and come to the St. Louis Cardinals at the trade deadline over the last decade or so, there aren't a lot of Max Scherzers in that bunch. And so um, now we were talking a little bit earlier in the week, uh, Ben, and uh, you have made the point, and I think it's a very good one, about who their competition is. Yeah. uh, Well, that's one thing. I mean, I guess just to get a uh, you know, to what degree is the sky falling? I'm I'm really not too worried right now, to be perfectly honest. And I don't think they're going to be probably very good in this month of June. Um, I think they look to me like they'll probably be, you know, below 400 in this month of June. But one thing I think that we fans tend to forget in the short term is that, um, you know, in in baseball, the very best teams win a little more than half of their games and the very worst teams win a little less than half of their games. So, you know, you can, you can be, uh, you know, a sub solidly sub 500 team for a month and a half of the season, which it looks like they may, you know, based on they've had a, you know, a couple rough weeks here. Um, just, although, you know, the, I think they're just under 500 over the last 10 days now. Um, you know, and, and assuming that kind of continues on through June, you really don't put yourself out of your division they, race, especially when you're, you know, you're, you're playing the Cubs and the Brewers. And, and the other thing is, and this is just a quirk of the schedule, um, you know, getting swept at home to the Reds is really unforgivable. Uh, they needed to at least split that. But they, they host Cleveland, then they go to Chicago, but then it's uh, three against Miami, uh, four at Atlanta, two at Detroit, four at home against Pittsburgh, then uh, three at home against Arizona. Then they go to Colorado for four, uh, then San Francisco for three. Then they have the Cubs for three, and it's the all-star break. And so they really they have six tough division games all against the Cubs during this stretch uh, when it's going to be bad. And the Cubs right now look like they they may be emerging as the front runner for the division, although Milwaukee's playing well as well. So right. the the schedule could be a lot worse uh, for yeah. them in this stretch if they were playing a whole bunch of their top competition in the division, uh, but they aren't. So it's it's going to be tough to lose some of these games, but they also have, you know, Colorado is terrible. Arizona is not good. You know, they're they're playing some yeah. bad teams and and Pittsburgh is terrible. And so they they yeah. could keep their head above water and get some players healthy, make some acquisitions and make a run at it for sure. Yeah, and, and you already touched on some of these guys, but just to kind of run through quickly their their you know injured guys. Uh, Yachty's day to day, it sounds very much like he'll probably be back um, after the off day. Um, uh, Harrison Bader, as you mentioned, um, I think is is back before the end of this month. You know, maybe two to three more weeks on him is kind of what it sounds like. Some somewhere thereabouts. Uh, Justin Williams, uh, don't know a ton about it, but it's just a ten day stint right now. May not be much more than that. Uh, KK, uh, you know, some back tightness. Again, they're talking, you know, kind of, you know, a couple weeks. DeYoung is already in a AAA rehab. Um, uh, uh, Cody Whitley uh, is injured, but I don't care enough about Cody Whitley to look too deeply into when he's uh, he's supposed to be coming back. And so really, uh, you know, Flaherty and Hicks 
and Michaelis are the only ones that are kind of your long-term guys. And, um, you know, even Flaherty, there seems to be talk that maybe the all-star break is when, you know, he comes, he comes back. The other two, I don't know if we'll see this year. Maybe we will in kind of August, September. But, you know, the bottom line is as they're, they're extremely injured right now, but it seems like these guys should be kind of gradually reappearing over the next month and then right up to um, the all-star break. So I think that really helps us out. Uh, and again, in, in terms of well, what does that mean as far as what do they do and what, you know, is the sky falling, et cetera. Overall, I think that what we're going to see in these next few weeks is we're going to see what few pieces they have at the minor league level that they can still sort of give a shot to, to see if maybe there's somebody there who can worm their way into the bullpen, or there's, there are, there's some possibility of a rotation spot here. Um, so Angel Rondon, who they brought up, I think is the most promising young player that they've actually brought up. Somebody who, if this person performs, you know, could maybe stick around. But, um, you know, I think they're going to kind of kick the tires with the guys they have for the next couple weeks. Because as you said, there's just not really trades to be had out there right now. So I think we're going to be looking at pretty much a month of June where they're dealing with the injuries they have. They're plugging in. Um, guys who mostly are organizational depth guys, maybe a couple guys who have a little bit of promise. And who knows, every now and then a couple of those guys kind of, you know, hit and you su- surprise, surprise, you found a valuable piece for the rest of your season. And then once we get to the all-star break, I think that's when they're really going to start moving aggressively in, uh, you know, in earnest to figure out what can they do on the trade deadline to fill out this team. And what I think this team could really use, I think they could use uh, Edwin Jackson, Octavio Dotel, and Mark Zipchinski. I feel like that's exactly the kind of acquisition <laughs> that this team probably needs. A little bit of rotation depth and a couple of uh, arms to upgrade. But in all seriousness, you know, looking back, I, I see some real um, kind of similarities with that season. And, you know, if you remember early in 2011, uh, that bullpen – uh, a, a large number of innings went to Miguel Batista, Ryan Franklin, and Brian Tallett. And if now my my six year old son is very into watching the 2011 World Series movie DVD, so I've watched it many times, and I can tell you it features almost no appearances from Miguel Batista, Ryan Franklin, or Brian Tallett. So, uh, you know, you can have guys that are really pitching a lot and, uh, you know, early in the season all the way up until the all-star break that there's still plenty of time to replace them either through internal options, you know, through kind of, uh, you know, uh, gold you find in the waiver wire that somebody else threw out. And then ultimately of course, through, through trades. So for all those reasons, I'm not too worried about that. Um, you know, but I feel like we've kind of freewheeled our way through both the rotation and the bullpen, but maybe we should just hit on each of them real quick. What Anything that we haven't covered already kind of specific to the rotation going forward that you wanted to hit on? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we've uh, pretty much touched on it. I, I think right now, you know, if you get one of those good starts from Martinez where the the balls in play are going to fielders from Wainwright at home. I mean, they've got to win those games. There's just such a, a narrow margin of error and they, they don't have the quality and that makes the Wainwright starts, the good Martinez starts, the Gantt starts uh, where he's not giving up, you know, a lot of runs that much more important to take advantage of here over the next month. Um, I am really interested to see how they go about repairing the rotation versus the bullpen with their organizational depth. Um, I think Liberator, they, they want to have in the rotation. I don't think he's going to come up and be a reliever. Uh, we talked about it with Kyle uh, last episode, I think Thompson maybe could come up and be that left-handed complement to Cabrera in the bullpen. Uh, but right now, it looks like Schiltz, they're going to go with uh, Andrew Miller now that apparently his blister has healed uh, for a little while. Um, but it does really feel like Andrew Miller, uh, to use some of the, the callbacks that you've used, might be a Miguel Batista or Ryan Franklin type uh on this 2021 team, which is to say he, he may not yeah. make it on the roster through the end of the year. And so they just have so many holes to fill. And, you know, you really have to wonder 
with the way the season is unfolding, uh, and I'm just going to start this so that we can continue to monitor, is, uh, is Maddox on the hot seat? Is he getting there? Or do they just chalk it up to injuries? Because everyone, us included, I think uniformly believed that this team was going to have a good bullpen. But this bullpen yeah. has really struggled throwing strikes, and so has the rotation. The whole the whole staff has, and you know this isn't you know Dakota Hudson when he came up had problems with walks, and you just kind of wonder what what is going on with the coaching approach. And these are professionals, and they have to throw strikes, and I get that. But there's a reason Dave Duncan could take guys and get them to just pound the zones with with sinkers and not walk anyone and have success. Why is Maddox, who is a very accomplished pitching coach, having trouble uh, getting his staff to throw strikes this year? Um, and yeah. that's kind of something that is becoming more and more curious to me. We all like to talk about the hitting coach uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but now I'm beginning to wonder what about the pitching coach? Because this team needs to throw strikes and really what are, they're only nibbling around the edges. They have to have Reyes walk fewer people. They have to have Helsley walk fewer people. I, you know, you Mm -hmm. can go down the line. They have to have Gantt walk fewer people, whether he's starting or in relief. And, uh, and so it's a problem where it's really twofold. How are they going to replace talent? And then how are they going to get their current talent to issue fewer walks? Because it's just unacceptable. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think he, he has to be on some level of, of hot seat because, you know, the, the pitching is underperforming dramatically. Um, what, you know, anyone's expectations were. And as you mentioned, specifically the, the walk rates are, you know, insane. And so, um, yeah, it's, we talk about coaches, they're always, it's in this black box. It's like, we don't really know what they do. We can't really see what their impact is. It, it's, you know, it's really hard to assess that. But at the end of the day, we, we have to sort of look at results and the, the pitching is very bad uh, right now. So the pitching coach certainly has to be in, you know, some degree of uh, uncertainty. I also think it's curious. Um, you see, so, you know, the, the club brought in Jeff Albert like two years ago now to not just be the major league hitting coach, but to really be sort of this, um, you know, the brains behind a complete organizational redevelopment of the hitting philosophy. And I think that's a much more modern way that a lot of teams are kind of uh, setting up their, their coaching. Uh Mike Maddox is not that at all. You know, Mike Maddox is uh, an ex ball player who, you know, walks out on the field and puts his hand on a guy's shoulders. It's interesting to me that the same organization, the Cardinals is taking one approach on the pitching side and a different approach on, you know, on the hitting side. And so I feel like there's also an incongruity there that just can't last forever. And if, if Albert finally delivers the kind of results that they've, you know, kind of bought into him and kept faith in him for quite a while. I think, well, well, then why don't you bring in somebody who can bring that kind of transformation in your player development on the pitching side? Because it certainly seems like something they could that they could benefit from. So, um, so, uh, and, and I agree with what you said about, uh, yeah, Liberator. I. I think is very, very unlikely to see the majors this year until maybe September at the, at the earliest, you know, it's important to remember he pitched in a ball in 2019 and then in 2020, there was a pandemic. And so he practiced all summer in Springfield, Missouri, and now he's had a few weeks of games at triple a jumping from single a to triple a. So he's on an amazing trajectory, but it just feels like it would be really irresponsible and counterproductive to, you know, rush him into a major league, uh, situation. Thompson, on the other hand, he's a little older. He was a college pitcher, so he feels more ready. And just by simple virtue of being a left-hander, it just makes more sense to be somebody that you you throw into a bullpen. And as long as we're going with the 2011 comparisons here, I could really see Zach Thompson being kind of a Lance Lynn sort of situation here, being a, a guy that's you know got some long-term projectability as a solid rotation piece that midway through the season, they're like, you know what, this guy, this guy misses more bats than anybody else we have up there. Let's bring him up. 
And then by the end of the season, you know, he's even a guy who's maybe starting to work his way into some of those seventh inning, eighth inning type appearances. Um, you know, but that's about it. I mean, I think Tommy Parsons is the only other guy that's in AAA that I think is somebody who at some point that they, they might consider as a as a starting pitcher. I mean, there's really not a lot of options there for you know, where they fill in in the starting situation. I'm interested to see. They used Angel Rondon out of the bullpen today, but with two off days this week, they may still be thinking of him in more of a, a you know, bench. someone's going to have to start for Kim, basically. You know, essentially, if Oviedo is kind of in for Flaherty, and of course, Gant is basically filling what would have been the, the Michaelis role in their original plans, um, you know, those, those two fingers are already, you know, plugging the holes of the boat. You know, we don't know what they're going to plug this this Kim hole with. Um, so, uh, you know, it could be could be Rondon. There was some talk about bringing up uh, Bernardo Flores, who is a, a name that I had to write down and look at to remember what it was. Um, he was a, a jobber they picked up from the White Sox right before the season started. And then, of course, there's always the chance they just give like Ponce de Leon, uh, you know, a spot start or two or something like that there. So. Uh, anyway, what about the what about the bullpen? Anything else we haven't touched on there, Ben? That well, I I think it's you know the best. Gallegos is the best thing about the bullpen. Um, he's he's the most reliable reliever they have. Cabrera is probably a close second. I mean, Reyes is is concerning because he gave up the home run today, but that's not why he's concerning. Um, it's, it's the walks and luckily his, his strikeout percentage has gone back up about where it was last year, but he just, he cannot walk one out of every five batters he faces because you're just playing with fire at that point. And so, um, you know, I, to me, that's a little bit concerning. Um, but if you go and you look at that bullpen, you know, folks call them the A team and the B team. And, you know, at this point in time, if you've got to get from the fifth to the end of the game with a lead, if if you are Mike Schilt because you're relying on someone like a Gant or an Oviedo or say they call up a Thompson and have him start to begin with to, to fill in for Kim, you know, who are you going to throw for one of those innings. And and right now it seems like the preference is to go with Gallegos and or Cabrera for more than one inning. Um, but, you know, who is that sixth inning guy uh, or that, you know, middle inning when it's tied or you're ahead? And then if you look at what if you're down by one? I mean, going with Andrew Miller or Ponce de Leon or Woodford or Elledge, I, you know, those are not a lot of names that instill a lot of confidence. And you look no. at that and it just, it is not pretty down there right now. No. And we talked early in the year and, and earlier in the year when the, you know, the starters were only going, you know, four and a third innings. Um, there was a point where it seemed like there was kind of an A team and a B team in the bullpen, but there's, there's no B team anymore. There's, there's, you know, there's an A team or there's, you know, running up the white flag more or less. Um, and so I, you know, just thinking about it in terms of a bullpen chain, I was just writing the names down. And so, you know, Reyes is obviously your back end guy in the ninth. And, and I share all your concerns about him and his walk rate. He strikes so many guys out though, that I feel like he's, he, he can keep, he can keep playing with that fire. Like he's, they have enough other problems that I'm not as worried about him. So, you know, you've got Reyes kind of as your you know, end of the game guy, Gallegos, and then Cabrera, I think come before that. I really don't have any concerns or complaints there. Those, you know, if, if you're, if you, you, your starter gives you six and then you're going to have Cabrera, Gallegos and Reyes with a two run lead. I think we all feel pretty good at this point. Like that's kind of where we want a game to go. Now you get before that, I think before that you probably have Helsley at this point and Helsley has been okay. He's been bad at times, but he's been good other times. Um, you know, Helsley, I think is okay. He looks like the kind of guy that you have in your bullpen, you know? Um, but man, when you get past there, it just drops off a cliff. And so you've got Miller in there now kind of coming in for Webb. And then, yeah, like you said, you've got Ponce, Woodford, Elledge, Fernandez, Whitley have all been guys that have been there, you know, at various times this year. And, 
it's kind of choose your poison there. Um, and that's just, you, you can have one or two of those kind of mop up guys in your bullpen, but you just can't, you can't have that as many as they do right now. And so now that said, a lot of those guys, uh, I mean, several of them are, are still relatively young guys. They're guys that has some degree of promise. So, I mean, I think you can hope that maybe a junior Fernandez sort of uh, find some consistency, some more consistency, or, you know, that, you know, any of these guys can kind of step up because if even one or two of them can step up and kind of, you know, bump up maybe, you know, at or around Helsley in that kind of bullpen chain there, your, your bullpen's looking a lot better. And, and then you really, you, you maybe need a, a guy or a couple guys from the trade market, but you don't need, you know, mass reinforcements coming in at that point. But if none of those guys can step up, then you're, you're really kind of, you're, you're kind of thin back there. No, I think you're right. So, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, uh, you know, the Godfather part two mass moves by Mosellock, uh, and Gersh, mm-hmm. like in 2011, where they basically remade the entire roster and, uh, and then went and won the World Series. Uh, but I, I think you're really right. They really want, they need to catch lightning in a bottle with a right-handed reliever. Um, yeah. They need someone to emerge who doesn't walk people and can strike some guys out. And I'm not saying yeah. 30% rate. I'm even saying like, hey, league average, which is 24%. Right. But like, you know, they just, they need someone up in that 20 to 25% range with who's only going to walk, you know, 8% round league average there um, because they need to be able to trust someone like that in the middle innings. And that'll make Mike Schilt's job a lot easier. And that person entering 2020, I would have told you it was Helsley because he did, he was basically that guy a little bit lower on the strikeout, uh, side of things despite his stuff but his his walks have ballooned the last two years and uh you know when you combine 2020 for all of its weirdness with 2021 it has carried over and and you wonder what the issue is but you hope he can get it corrected because he's an important reliever down in that bullpen uh, for this team and that middle relief is going to be so much more important over the next four to eight weeks uh, when they're trotting out, you know, the John Gantz and Oviedo's and who knows who else. Well, yeah, and, and whoever takes Kim's starts. I mean, yeah, yep. these are not. And, and you know, and, and Carlos Martinez has not shown himself to be a guy that's going to be out there for, you know, seven innings at, at all either. So, um, yeah, it's uh, – no, they're definitely going to need those guys in, in the bullpen. So – Speaking of pitching and trouble with walks, uh, I think that brings us to our box score of yore. And so um, I picked out this particular game um, and I may have. um, So actually, actually, this is my second call out to Daniel Shopta, I guess, this episode, because he was a guest on the Chirps podcast a few weeks back. And his trip of the week had to do with walks. And he mentioned a couple kind of horrifying games in Cardinals past. And so I wanted to take a look at one of those games. This is from July 16th, 1994. This is the St. Louis Cardinals at the uh, Colorado Rockies. And uh, this, <laughs> this is a game, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose we'll just spoil it up, up front and tell you that this game is notable because it is the record for walks in a nine-inning game by the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, it's also actually, the, it ties their record for any inning game. They walked 16 batters in this game. The only other time they walked 16 batters was in a 20-inning game. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and this, this was actually uh, only eight innings of pitching because uh, Colorado was ahead, so they didn't play the bottom of the ninth. So the Cardinals walked 16 guys in eight innings in this particular game. So I thought we might kind of mostly take a look at this from the, the pitching side of the equation. But uh, Ben, just kind of real quick, looking at our starting lineups here, anything in general that stood out to you or just about this sort of 1994 team? Uh, just the sun continuing to set on the whitey ball era, just due to the random chance of our box scores of yore. Uh, when we had, Alex on, he chose, I believe, a 1990 box score. And you could kind of see the changing of the guard between the 80s 
Whitey Ball Cardinals and and those juggernaut Phillies teams. Uh, and now you look at this, and and the sun continues to set on that era of St. Louis Cardinals baseball uh, with this starting lineup. And while I remember uh, playing with many of these players and them being not bad on Sega Genesis, uh, they were not very good in real life. And no. <laughs> uh, in particular on the pitching front. Um, but one of the things that I just love about this box score that you chose is it, a, it is a record. A, a dubious record with an asterisk, but instead of the asterisk uh, kind of undermining the standing of the record, it actually makes it more impressive and worse. Like, yes, this is the record for most walks in a nine inning game, but they did not pitch nine innings. They only pitched eight, <laughs> you know, because they lost. Yeah. And I just, I think that is, uh, the Cardinals are my favorite team, but that is just an amazing uh, aside and footnote to this little piece of history. Yeah, well, and I would say to your point, the the light is really very, very close to out on the Whitey Ball Cardinals here. We've got Ozzie Smith is the only real guy that's still kind of carrying the torch there. Um, to me, this lineup looks like um, Ozzie Smith and a handful of guys that Anheuser-Busch was willing to pay for in 1994 because this was just kind of the dregs of... And I like some of these guys. Uh, you, you had Greg Greg Jeffries, Todd Zeal, Mark Witten, Bernard Gilkey. You know, I, I, look, I like some of these players, but this this was not a, not a good Cardinals team. Well, and you also had Jose Okendo uh, making a pinch-hitting performance and coming in to replace Ozzie Smith. Uh, at shortstop in this game, which is a fun little handoff of sort of the the whitey ball era guys in this game. Uh, but you're right. Like, really, Mark Witten did some pretty good things for the Cardinals. Um, you know, hard hit. All Mark in Witten. one game. Yes, yeah. <laughs> all in one game. Um, and it was sort of when you're a kid, you know, they trot these guys out and they promote them and you think that they're good. And then of course you play with them on a video game and you can win. Um, and that sort of makes you think that, Oh, you know, they're, they're good. They just didn't make the postseason this year. Um, but in reality that no, they're, they're not very good. And, you know, the, the other fun thing about this is they, they only managed to score uh, four hits on 10 run or excuse me, four runs on 10 hits uh, at uh, altitude in Denver for this game. And so that yeah, gives you an idea like of their pre- punchlessness, right? Yeah, this is like pre-Humidor, Colorado. This is like, you know, cre- this is like you put the offensive sliders all the way to the edge, uh, Colorado in, in 94 here. So um, so rather than kind of um, walk through sort of inning by inning as we often have, I thought maybe we'd just kind of go down this Cardinals pitching line here. So uh, you have Omar Oliveris, who uh, who started the game, who, you know, I feel like he's a guy that maybe we don't give enough. I don't know if respect is quite the right word, but, you know, he was a decent pitcher. He pitched for a number of years for the Cardinals. Uh, you know, I mean, he was never great, but, uh, you know, he was all right. He got some got some innings there over some teams that weren't real, you know, real bad or, or real, uh, for some teams that weren't real great is what I was trying to say. In this particular game, you know, not his best. He's probably not used to pitching in Colorado yet. They've only been playing there for a little while. So, so Oliveris would go four and a third. Um, he would give up uh, seven hits, uh, seven runs, six earned, one of them a home run. But to our point here, in his four and a third innings pitch, he would uh, he would walk six. So, um, so right out of the gate, we're four and a third innings in, and uh, the Cardinals have already tallied six bases on balls. Um, anything else about Oliveris or you want to take it from there, Ben? Well, when we see these, I always get curious uh, because the game has changed so much and you, you see this uh, constantly coming up in the media coverage and I don't want to harp on it because I don't want to make it uh, out to be more than it, than it is. But he threw 73rd and two thirds innings for the Cardinals in uh, 1994. Uh, he issued during this season, he issued 37 walks and, uh, 
only managed to strike out 26, which works out to an 11.1% uh, walk rate and a 7.8% strikeout rate. Now, he was usually up uh, over 10 and into the lower to mid-teens with strikeout rate, um, but he his... Uh, his walks were just, they were pretty high, especially for the era uh, starting in 93 and, and really through the end of his career, which by the way, lasted into 2001 with the Pittsburgh pirates. And I, I just note this in passing, he's 53 years old. Uh, he, he is a righty, so they might not be able to reach out to him and see if he wants to take the Kim starts. Um, Cause I don't know how 53 <laughs> years old uh, with a, you know, a sub 15% walk rate in the nineties would play uh, in today's major league. But um, I, I found it interesting. The last time I looked up an old timey pitchers strikeout rate and walk rate uh, for the year of the box score in your, uh, it was Ricky Horton. And he also issued more walks uh, than he notched strikeouts. And so the, the curse of the box score of your lives on uh, here today. <laughs> So next into the game, we had uh, Brian Eversgird, who I got to be honest, I don't feel like I really remember him as a Cardinals pitcher. But of course, he has been the Cardinals bullpen coach for the last several years. So I, I know him more from that, um, uh, I, I guess. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I, I don't maybe I remember him, but I don't really feel like I remember him as a relief pitcher. In this game, he came in, uh, pitched an inning, uh, gave up one hit one earned run and just for good measure, he tacked on two walks as well. So uh, that was, that was a pitching uh, or bullpen coach, excuse me, Brian Eversgird's contribution to this game. So we may have found the problem with the bullpen uh, in 2020. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. He's, he's keeps telling him about this game. It's like, no man, don't tell him about that game. (laughs) He's uh, he's, um, I did not, I do not remember him as a player either. And I brought up his, uh, his player card as well. And I found it really fascinating that he, he came up in 94 with the Cardinals. Uh, then he was with the Expos in 95, uh, did not pitch in the majors in 96, then, uh, pitched for Texas in 97 and then was back uh, for only an inning and a third, mind you, and then was back with the Cardinals for six innings in 98. Um, and so he was not a, uh, you know, did not have a long uh, major league career. Um, but I did kind of take a cheap shot at him there, and he did not have a high walk rate um, uh, when he was pitching for the Cardinals in 1994. Uh, so just a interesting, he, he, he is kind of the quintessential journeyman relief pitcher, I feel like. So probably not a bad bullpen coach to have. Yeah. Yeah. So next in the game, um, speaking of, um, guys, I don't remember, there's a lot of players I do not remember who pitched in this game, which, um, when you see the results, you, you kind of realize why these were maybe pretty short timers. So next we had Frank Cimarelli. Uh, he pitched, uh, two thirds of an inning. So, so Eversgard came in, in the fifth, uh, he finished the fifth inning for Oliveris, and then he got, uh, one out in the sixth. Uh, then they go to Cimarelli. Cimarelli would uh, finish that sixth inning, uh, uh, so he'd get two more outs. But in doing so, he would give up one hit, no earned runs, but he would also walk two. Uh, Frank Cimarelli, uh, who I just looked up, uh, only appeared in the major leagues in 1994. He pitched in 11 games, and he had a walk. And again, walks through nine is not a great stat, but I'm on baseball reference. So that's what I have available. Uh, 6.8 is not a good number for your uh, your walks per nine. You don't want to be there. No, and the raw total is pretty ugly. He has uh, 10 total walks, two, in, two intentional walks, uh, and then only one strikeout uh, in 1994. Yes, and, and actually, and thank you, I should mention <laughs> both Eversgird and Cimarelli threw an intentional walk in this game. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Frank Cimarelli is coming in in the sixth inning. Uh, the Cardinals have already given up six runs. 
Um, they have scored two and uh, they issue an intentional walk. So again, we're definitely seeing uh, strategy was a little different back before anyone bothered writing down what worked and what didn't. That's um, really amazing. Yeah. So moving on. And I, this next guy I have just found really, really fascinating. His name is Steve Dixon. Okay. Again, not a guy that I remember Steve Dixon. Um, now this is a point in the game. So, okay. There were six innings in here. We've had six, we've given up 10 walks already. Um, they've given up, uh, eight runs. All right. So, the, uh, whereas Eversgird and Cimarelli each issued some intentional walks suggesting the team was still maybe trying to, Hey, maybe we can pull this out. Dixon comes in and, uh, it's, it's time to wear it here. Okay. Um, so Steve Dixon comes in, he will pitch one and two thirds innings, um, during which he will walk six. Um, he will also, uh, give up two hits and a grand total of five earned runs. Okay. Now that's a bad game. That's a rough game, but, uh, <laughs> For Steve Dixon, overall, this was just kind of the the story of his career. So I found out, um, I I told you earlier that uh, Frank Cimarelli had uh, almost seven uh, walks per nine. Uh, Steve Dixon, for his career, had 23.4 walks per nine. Um, Actually, the highest of all time for a St. Louis Cardinals pitcher who appeared in at least six games, which was the amount that Steve Dixon appeared in. In fact, it's more than double the next guy who appeared in at least six games um, for the Cardinals. So uh, he would give up. uh, uh, Oops, sorry, I lost my lost my place there. Um, So in 1993, uh, the year before this, he got into four games, pitched 2.2 innings, and walked five. In 1994, he uh, would pitch in two games, uh, 2.1 innings pitched, and walk eight. Uh, his major league debut came against Cincinnati, which was right next to his hometown. There was a nice story about it. His family and all came in, and they were treated to him facing two batters, both of whom he walked and both of whom went on and scored. So Steve Dixon, not a name I remember. I'm guessing not a name many of you remember, but boy, could this guy issue uh, issue a free pass. So um, Ben, anything else about uh, Dixon or, or Cimarelli? I, I don't want to pile on too much because I know people are chasing their dreams and trying their best. Uh, but yes. um, Steve Dixon had an infinity ERA through his first two appearances because he did not record an out. Uh, then he he did record outs uh, against the Cubs. He threw two and a third inning, and that lowered his ERA to 30.86 uh, because he also gave up six runs in that game. And so he it, it seems like he just he struggled with some control uh, when he made it up and uh, was therefore able to contribute to this record-setting um performance by the St. Louis Cardinals pitching staff uh, on this uh, Denver day. It is always worth noting all of these people made the major leagues, which is an incredibly rare feat. If you took all of the major leaguers in history, you could fit them inside of Bush Stadium. And all we're saying is if you seated them according to how good they were, um, you know, Steve Dixon would be like leaning on a railing up at the Budweiser Terrace or something. So um, but hey, he's still in the stadium. Uh, Ben and I are not in the stadium. (laughs) Absolutely not. He is way better at baseball than I could ever dream uh, to have been at baseball. Um, And uh, even so, he finds himself in this historical curiosity of a box score of yore. So Dixon, (laughs) Dixon was pulled with two outs in the ninth or in the eighth, uh, which, you know, was going to be the last inning that the, the, Cardinals uh, had to pitch. So, you know, they really, obviously they were, they left him out there. It would seem the intention was to just let him go until it was done. But after the six walks, they, they pulled him, they brought in uh, Renee Arocha, who I feel like I very vaguely remember, not real specific, but the name I at least remember. Um, So he came in, um, (laughs) he, uh, he gave up two hits. Um, both hits were home runs, <laughs> and then he uh, and then he recorded the final out in the eighth inning. There, um, he was the only pitcher to appear in this game 
and not issue a walk. So good on him for that. However, the fact that he did in a third of an inning give up two hits, which were both home runs, much, much less good. So uh, your your final for your eight inning line here, uh, Cardinals pitchers give up a, a total of 13 hits, 16 walks and uh, 15 runs. So a uh, bit of a bit of a rough outing for the old Redbirds. They would uh, they would drop this one 15 to four. Uh, any, anything else about this game, Ben? Um, no, I just, I think it, it also goes to show, I, you know, they had the walks, um, but they got knocked around pretty badly. And it, it is a nice reminder, uh, of what it used to be like to watch a Rockies game. Like, it was like watching a different sport almost, um, or maybe a different country's version of baseball with a different style of play. Uh, but it was right there in the National League West, uh, and we got to experience it one series a year. And Colorado is still a good hitter's park, but it's just nowhere near what it was there in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, well, and I and I just double checked, and this was actually at Mile High Stadium, so this was still pre uh, um, pre Coors Field out there, and, and yeah, I what you're saying too just got me thinking. I think at this point, we do have a few like knowns about pitching in Colorado. Like we know that breaking pitches don't move as much. We know, like we kind of you know, have figured out some survival tactics. And at this point, I don't think anybody knew anything. And, and for most of these pitchers, this was probably their very first time to pitch there at altitude. So uh, whatever their repertoire or their game plan usually was, you got to think they went out there on the mound and just found nothing was working the way that it was supposed to. Oh yeah. It would be a trial and error uh, not only for organizations, but for individual players. And so I, you're absolutely right. It was just trying to figure out what would work. And, you know, I don't think that there's any better evidence that no one really knew what would work in Colorado than the Daryl Kyle contract, where, you know, this is a guy yeah. whose signature pitch is a 12 to 6 breaking ball, and we're going to sign him to pitch at altitude in Colorado. And, you know, they basically took uh, – you know, his signature pitch and knocked it down several notches just by where he was playing his home games. And then of course he had the resurgence after the move back to the St. Louis Cardinals. And so, yeah, well, it wasn't, wasn't Mike Hampton, a big changeup guy. Wasn't that his, his pitch was. Yeah. And the um, cutter, I think maybe later on um, as well. Right. Um, But but another guy who, yeah, very good pitcher before he got there and then <laughs> very wealthy pitcher after he got there, but not so much good anymore. So anyway, somehow watching the Cardinals over the last two weeks got me thinking that this would be a, a, a relevant box score for us to look back at. But uh, we're, uh, we've just ticked over an hour here, Ben, uh, on the old pod. Um, we focus mostly on pitching today. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday. We've got the two off days this week. Um, so our plan is to focus more on the hitting side there. So I definitely say anybody, uh, you know, if you have questions or just specific things you'd like us to touch on, shoot us an email or, uh, uh, you know, hit us up on Twitter. Um, we're at Cardinals off day about that. But Ben, um, I guess let's say rather than talk about these next two days, let's say over the next couple weeks on the pitching side, what are you looking for? Um, I'm looking at the fifth and sixth innings and who is pitching them. Um, they need the starters to pitch them more often than not, obviously. Uh, but I'm really interested to see who Mike Schilt is going to be going with uh, when he decides to pull the starter and go to the bullpen. If it's a close game and they're behind or if they have a lead uh, or if it's mop-up duty to see how he is assigning roles um, because those middle innings are going to be that much more important uh, with the injuries that they've had. And I'm very interesting, interested to see who Schilt feels he can trust and if anyone emerges to seize that role in the games when the Cardinals have a lead. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, so I, I've already said his name a couple times on this podcast, but I'm going to be watching Angel Rondon. And the reason is... I kind of mentioned earlier this idea that, oh, I think over the next month we're going to see 
do they have any organizational pieces currently who might step up and fill a role um, for the rest of the season so that they don't have to necessarily fill in via trade. And definitely, I think if they if they do call up a Zach Thompson, he's somebody that fits that, but he's not there yet. We don't know if he will be. Rondone is one guy who was just added, who of a lot of these names we're talking about at this kind of like bottom end of the bullpen options or possible kind of spot starting options. He's really the... To me, the kind of primary name that's floating around that conversation that I do think they see a real future with with this organization. I think they expect him to be in some kind of a role, you know, over the next, you know, two to three years or so at least. And um, again, I think, you know, someone's going to have to take this uh, basically Kim's spot in the rotation, you know, coming up here late this week. I'm very interested to see if it's him, because if Rondone either can get that start Uh, or pitch effectively out of the bullpen, I think he's a guy that they would say, okay, like we're going to stick with this guy. This guy's now kind of, you know, one of the group here. So I'll be, I'll be watching for anybody who can either assert themselves into one of those roles low on the, on the kind of bullpen chain, or if anyone who happens to get one of these sort of spot starts, that's going to be available over the next month can step up. But specifically to me, the one name that I think might have a shot to do it is, uh, is on hell Rondon. So, uh, Anything else, Ben, before we wrap it up? No. Hopefully uh, the team facing an American League team gives the, and the day off does the trick and they're able to snap out of this uh, cold streak and this losing streak and uh, everyone will be in a better mood when we record the next podcast here in a couple days, both us uh, and our listeners. Yeah, I think, you know, as, as rough as this last patch has been uh, a day off and two wins, I think would put us in a, in a much better mood. So, all right. Well, with that, thank you guys for joining us again for another Cardinals off day podcast. We'll be back with you on Thursday. <laughs>